1 Timothy chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 11, and I will read those verses to us now. The title of, this, of the study is The Role of the Law in Gospel. The Role of the Law in Gospel. Verse 6, I mean, I'll back up to verse 5 just to get a, a full sentence read here. It says, now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith, from which... Some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And we'll stop right there and begin to uh, make a couple of comments. And actually, I got kind of an elongated introduction this morning. As we were talking last week about uh, the charge that Paul gave to Timothy, to say nothing else and to charge those to preach no other gospel. Um, I just mentioned in the study that we have essentials of the faith, but I didn't actually have those um, laid out. And so I want to take the beginning of our study time this morning to, um, I, I, I'm not going to do as much as I did last time because I, I, I read too much, but I'll, I'll give you a website where you can go read these if you want to. But there are some what are called creeds of the Christian faith, early what they are is the early Christian statements about what we believe. They, they came about because there was false teaching that was going on. And so because they denied the deity of Christ or because they denied the Holy Spirit or because they de denied the incarnation or they denied the Trinity, um, there are four creeds in particular that were written in that context. But they all kind of say the same thing. And you can hear as you go through the different emphasis. But this, the one I want to read to you this morning is the Apostles' Creed. Um, it's called the Creed of Creeds. And it was believed to have been developed in the first or second century, not by the apostles, but by those that came after. But the earliest existence of it is not found until 390. Um, but it is uh, one of the earliest statements we believe we have outside of Scripture, which is paramount. Um, but here's what it says. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. I, uh, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his, holy, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell, or don't think of the suffering part of hell, but of like the, the grave where Lazarus would have been. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, not Roman Catholic, but Catholic meaning universal, number two definition probably in our minds, but the universal church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. That's called the Apostles' Creed. Um, there's a Nicene Creed, which is in 325, very, very similar to that. Um, more explicit statement on Christ, the divinity of Christ and the Holy Spirit in that one. Um, the Cal uh, Chalcedonian Creed, written in 451 AD, um, really emphasized uh, the humanity of Jesus. Um, not taking away from the other, but it was dealing with another heresy at that time. And then there's the Athanasian Creed, which is probably quadruple the length of what I just read. And um, that was really, if you want to read a statement about the Trinity, that would be a good place to go. So those four creeds are, are foundational um, in, in the early church's existence. If you go to a website called carm.org, carm.org, just type in creeds and you can, re you can read them all. And um, they all kind of have that same kind of style to which I, I just read. But these are important for us. And this is, these are, this is the statements of, if we don't believe in this, we don't have a Christian faith. And so they wrote these statements down. Um, there's seven non-negotiables of the Christian faith, as, as I like to call them. Just, we must believe in these. And, and they're the scriptures. They're inspired, they're inerrant. The Trinity, that uh, we believe there's one living God um, existing eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, 
and the Holy Spirit. We believe in God the Father. Uh, we believe in God the Son. He's divine. We believe in God the Holy Spirit, divine. Um, we believe in salvation by grace. And we believe in the second coming of Christ. Now, that's not our complete doctrinal statement, right? There's a lot of other things we could say. Um, about that. We talked a lot about the rapture of the church in First and Second Thessalonians. Well, I believe it's going to happen before uh, the Great Tribulation. Others believe it's going to happen in the middle, and others believe it's going to happen at the end. And they, that doesn't put them or me outside of Christianity because we don't agree. We all would agree on those. And a lot of times people make such a big deal. Oh, you guys have so many different denominations. You can't even agree upon what you believe. We all agree upon this. As Christians, we all agree upon the, the, the statements that we've just read. And um, I, I, those are important doctrines for us to know. Why? Because there's so much false teaching out there. Um, Jude said that we should earnestly contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to who? The saints, not the apostles. It, was, it came from the apostles, but it was delivered to us. The point I'm making is we must earnestly contend for this. We must know what we believe and we must cling to it. You know, there is such a proliferation today of false teaching. There's always been false teachers, but a proliferation exists today because of the, the Internet. Now, there's also a proliferation of the gospel. Praise the Lord. But, you know, the way it worked for centuries was that you had to be known by somebody and you had to have the affirmation of the church if you were going to go out and plant a church or be an evangelist or be a missionary, if you're going to be one that was going to be teaching you know, within the body of Christ. And that's the way we function today. But today that's, you know, I'm at Calvary Chapel Lynchburg, and I would say most churches, but that's not the way the false teachers operate. You know, they, they don't like what was said at the church. They go create a website and they figure out how to market it. And now people hear and I would just say this. I mean, I just gave you a website that I think is solid, so it's, I'm not anti-website. But, but this is what I would say. The last place you want to go and find your doctrine is on the Internet. It's not because you can't find true statements. It's just because there's so much stuff that you have to weed through. And so hopefully um, today will be helpful in that process. And, you know, whatever, if you're visiting, say your church hopefully has a doctrinal statement that sounds something like this. If it doesn't, you need to find another church because this is just historic Christian faith. These creeds and the statement that, that we have here as our church, it only is useful in as much as it rightly represents what the Word of God has to say. And if it doesn't rip, rightly represent what the Word of God has to say, wad it up and work on your jump shot. I don't know. But it's, the paper's not worth anything if it, if it veers from the Word of God. So we get it from the Bible. We don't get it from creeds. We don't get it from doctrinal statements. We get it from Scripture. But the church historically has written these creeds or these statements down to kind of synthesize these thoughts in one place. And so that is the value of it. We move on into our text in verse 6, and we see the impact of these false teachers. In verse 5, um, Paul says, hey, I'm giving you this commandment. It comes from love, and um, there should be a sincere faith, um, right? He talks about a pure heart. He talks about a good conscience. And then he says, these guys, the false teachers are in Ephesus. These false teachers, they have strayed from that. Now, the word strayed here, turned aside, it's like, oh, well, they made a mistake. No, 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 no. They overshot the target on purpose. It's not even like missing the mark. It's like they have purposely gone off the trail and decided to make their own way. And that's always a dangerous thing when you decide to go off the trail. And that was the impact it was having. What was the impact of these false teachers? Well, in verse 6, we see that they had turned aside to idle talk, or as it says in the King James, Vain janglings. That, I think that's probably, we should have just stuck with that because that really, it feels like what Paul is thinking. It, it, it wasn't producing benefit. It wasn't producing edification. These teachers that he's referring to, they desired to be teachers of the law, but they really didn't know what they were saying. Um, and in some places... 
um, like in the book of Galatians, in the book of Romans, and, and even a little bit in Philippians, we see that the, the teachers of the law, that they were saying that you had to keep the law in order to be saved, and they were um, dismantling uh, the gospel of grace. And that was a serious problem, and that's why those letters were written. Um, it doesn't seem like that's their goal here. They have another error with the law, which we talked about last week. And remember, it was just fables and genealogies. They were talking about every kind of outlandish thing you can imagine. Um, and, you know, there's all kinds of history. We talked about some of the things, you know, uh, the infancy gospels and how they fill in the, fill in the gaps. Not really. But they, they say they're filling in the gaps of what the scriptures didn't tell us about Jesus. And um, the Jewish writings had these same kind of things. They would tell you about what all the son, names of you know, somebody's sons were. And they'll talk about all these other outlandish stories. And, and they were somehow using genealogies to try and uh, say that they're people of note. And the result was vain jangling. And I like what this one author says of these guys, these idle talkers. He says, they weaned the minds of their listeners away from the simplicity of the gospel. And in doing so, they miss both the truths of the Old Testament and the teaching of Christ. So what is the danger of all these side issues that are not found in scripture? You get weaned off of your appetite for the word of God. And now you're into vain janglings. And that's a problem. And that's a, that's a serious issue. Um, I'm, certainly this, drive, this is an issue that drives at the heart of, of why we have adopted um, to take on the Word of God the way we do, working through it book by book. Um, because we want you to just be immersed in the Word of God and to, to hear it and to know it and to whet your appetite to go study and know these things for yourself. You know, isn't it interesting? Okay, yeah, it's interesting. And maybe it's interesting if it's like 1% of my time. But if interesting things outside of Scripture is 90% of your times or half of your time, that's a problem. And the threat is you're going to get caught up in these vain janglings. You're going to get weaned off the simplicity of the gospel and get hooked up on all of these outlandish ideas. Listen, we've got a book in front of us. It's pretty big. Um, I don't think we all know it as well as we would like to. We certainly aren't all living it out as effectively as we should. And I know we haven't passed on the truth of it to everybody that needs to hear it. Those three reasons alone are why we should stick right here and remain in the Word of God. I say that this group was not necessarily there at Ephesus, that they were not necessarily teaching that there was a salvation through works, as they did in Galatia or um, as they were doing in Rome or even a little bit at the Church of Philippi. But that was a real problem in the early church. And unfortunately, it still remains a problem to this very day. They teach that you must fulfill the law as a means of obtaining a good standing before God. They don't come right out and say, oh, Jesus is bad news. They say, oh, Jesus is great. But you also, you got to be circumcised and you've got to keep the law and you've got to eat these things and you got to worship on these days and you got to pay attention to this calendar. And those things combined will result in salvation. That's not what the New Testament teaches. As a matter of fact, that's not what the Old Testament teaches. Paul's very clear that nobody ever has been saved by keeping the law. Nobody. Abraham wasn't. Moses wasn't. It's always been through faith that people have found salvation. The law was never a means to do that. We'll talk about that a little bit more in just a moment. There's a lot of places we could go with this, but let me just throw out a few ideas here. When we talk about the dietary laws, um, you know, what should you eat? Unclean uh, versus clean. Now listen, if you decide to eat clean food um, as in the Old Testament, and that's what you want to do, I don't have any objection. Just don't judge me for my pulled pork sandwich, okay? Because <laughs> you don't have a verse for your veggie burger, but I have a verse for my bacon cheeseburger, all right? And it really doesn't matter what we eat, but don't make an issue over it, and I shouldn't make an issue over it either. I do want you to know this, though, very clearly. Write it down. Leviticus 20, verses 25 and 26. The reason why God gave dietary laws. Why did he do that? So they'd be healthy? That, that's not what it says. 
The reason why he gave the dietary laws, or well, so they wouldn't, you know, uh, uh, well, so that they wouldn't be confused with the other nations. He says, I've given you this so you will be distinguished from the other nations. That they, the Jews, were to be distinguished from the other Gentile nations. Let's fast forward. Peter's at the house of a tanner in Joppa. He's up on the rooftop and he has a vision. In this vision, a sheet comes down and there's all kinds of unclean animals. And the Lord says to Peter, what? Rise, kill, and eat. There's my verse right there. Okay? Carnivore is, is kosher. So, rise, kill, and eat. And, and he says, not so, Lord. I've never had anything unclean. I can't eat these things. He's like, Peter, go ahead and have a lobster. Go ahead and have shrimp. He says, not so, Lord. I can't do this. And the Lord says to him, don't call what I have made clean unclean. That happens three times. It's funny with Peter three times, isn't it? He denied him three times. You know, three times Jesus said, do you love me? Three times he said, eat the food. But it really wasn't so much about the food because after the third time, a knock was at the door and there were men asking him to go up the road a bit to uh, Caesarea and to come to the house and preach the gospel. Peter made the immediate connection. He said, all right, let's go. And he takes some buddies with them. They go up to Caesarea. They walk into the house of a Gentile. Um, they share a meal together. It, you don't find that in the a- actual account, but in the follow-up, they question, why did you sit down and eat with Gentiles? He goes in the house. He eats with them, preaches the gospel. The Holy Spirit falls upon them while he was still in mid-sentence. He didn't even get to the altar call. The, the Holy Spirit falls upon them. They begin to speak in tongues and prophesy. And he's like, I didn't do that. If the Lord is accepting them, then who am I to not accept them? And he made the connection. Don't call unclean what I've called clean. He understood from Leviticus that there was to be a distinction. And now the Lord is saying, there is no more distinction. Everybody's clean. That's why we read in um, Ephesus, the Lord says that he's making um, a single man from the two. Jew and Gentile together and one new man, one new body. So the gospel has removed the distinction between Jew and Gentile. Therefore, the force of the dietary laws is also removed. That's one way to approach that conversation. There are many other points that could be made besides that. Um, So what about food, drink, uh, the moons, or Sabbaths? Well, let me just say what Scripture says. Colossians 2, 16 through 17. Let no one judge you in food or in drink. So you have your veggie burger, I'll have my pulled pork sandwich. Or regarding a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. Actually, Sabbaths, which are, look at this, a shadow of things to come, but the substances of Christ. Christ came, so they no longer have their role. Jesus has become the fulfillment of these things, and so we are not saved by works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. What's the next line? Not of works. We're not saved by works lest anyone should boast. Or Galatians 3, 27 and 28. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No. But the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. It can't get any clearer than that. These things are not a means to do that. One further point, Acts chapter 15, really kind of almost a follow-up in part of what happened there at the house of Cornelius and the missionary journeys of Paul and and Silas and how um, uh, Barnabas, excuse me, um, Silas will join in Acts 15. But there, what had happened, there were some that were followers of Jesus and they were going out and they were telling the new believer, new Gentile believers, You've got to be circumcised if you really want to seal the deal in your faith and um, become a Christian. This is what you got to do if you want, really want to be in. And so this is not what they had been preaching. This is not what they've been teaching. And it caused all kinds of you know, uh, uh, trouble in the minds of the Gentiles and those that understood the gospel of grace. 
So they got together and they wrote a letter in Acts chapter 15. And what they said is, we don't want you to be circumcised. And um, all that we ask is that you would not commit, you know, basically not commit sexual immorality, that you would not be involved in idolatry, that you would not eat, you know, um, drink blood, and that you would not eat things that have been strangled. To which some said, aha, New Testament Acts 15, dietary laws back in force. And I'll just put it this way. They're talking about not the menu, but about the venue. Because where did you strangle animals? You did that at the temple, the pagan temple. Because as you strangled that little bird, sorry, but just, I mean, you know, as you strangled the bird, the life of that bird, they believe, went from that bird into the idol. And so strangling the bird gave life to the idol. The drinking of the blood was to identify with that God. Obviously, sexual immorality, that happened many times where? At the pagan temples. So when he says, don't commit sexual immorality, don't drink blood, don't eat things that have been strangled, it was very clear to them that this was talking about idolatry. So we're not asking you to be circumcised. We're just saying, don't be involved with idolatry anymore. And it is a really clear statement. So we are not saved by the works of the law. So what does that mean about the law? Well, let's, let's move on. Verse 8. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. The law is good. Well, and this is where we have a problem. Because we either have those who are like, hey, we need to keep the law. We got to do that. Because God, you know, said keep the law. We've got to keep the law to be saved. And then there's others that say, live however you want to. Neither extreme is right. So the law is good. And how is it good? Well, if one uses it lawfully. He said the same thing in Romans 7, 12. Therefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. So it's not that there was a problem with the law. The law is good. The problem is the law has a purpose. There's a function of the law. And the function of the law is to not justify, as we already read there in Romans 3, 27 and 28. So I think we can get the wrong idea about the law. Law is bad. No, law is not bad. Trying to be justified by the law, that's bad. But the law has its purpose and it has its function. And down through the years, there have been three main ways in which those who ascribe and have championed the gospel of grace have said the law serves as purpose. Number one, it restrains individuals from trespassing into wrong territory. So in other words, um, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery. Um, it restrains people. Uh, secondly, the law is like a mirror revealing sin. Revealing sin. Think of Galatians 3, 21, uh, 25. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, has made us all guilty, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. It was restraining. I think our first point there kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, listen to this, verse 24, the law was our tutor. What was it teaching us? To bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. We're no longer under the law. So the law was meant to tell us we're sinners. It was to be a mirror that we look into and say, I have missed the mark and I am... I'm in a serious problem. Thirdly, um, and a little more thought needs to go into this one, the law serves as a rule and guide to point out the works that please God. We're not saved by works, but God wants us to live holy lives, right? Be holy for I am holy. If you love me, keep my commandments. We've not been called to lawlessness. So the law is good and it has a purpose to restrain 
individuals from trespassing, to be a mirror, and also to tell us how to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about here on this third point. Romans 13, 8 through 10, talks about the law. It says, Oh, no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So we know how to walk because the law tells us these things. But we're not trying to find a place of justification through it. Now, who's Paul addressing? Men who needed restraint. Men who needed a mirror. Men who needed to have a guide in the life. They used the law as a, land, a launch pad to go off and talk about all their crazy you know, tales um, and genealogies. And they were being robbed of the power of the law. They, they, weren't allowed, they weren't using the law lawfully. They were using it just for all of their vain janglings, but not for the purpose that it was sent. The lawbreaker, excuse me, lawbreakers, the, the law exists for lawbreakers, but not for the righteous person. It's meant to restrain them, to keep them back. The law lets us know how to live a good life, but as believers, where is the law now? What did, what did it say in, in Jeremiah and Ezekiel? The law would be written under the new covenant. Where was it? On our hearts. And, that, and, and really, you could, you could have just a few words. Love God, love your neighbor. That's it. The entire law has just been written on your heart. Because, you see, the law of love for God goes far beyond the letters that I could read on a page, be that even inspired and holy, there's, you can't address every situation. But you know what? Written on my heart, love God. Oh, that, that reaches out into all areas. Love my neighbor. I mean, you could write all, a thousand commandments and still it can't cover every, every situation. But the law that's been written on my heart that says love my neighbor, wow, I can't get away from that. And the Holy Spirit is there to teach me and to instruct me on this at all times. Let me read to you a quote from John Stott. He says, We must not therefore imagine that because we have embraced the gospel, we may now repudiate the law. To be sure, the law is impotent to save us, and we have been released from the law's condemnation so that we are no longer under it in that sense. But God sent his Son to die for us and now put his Spirit within us in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. There is no antithesis between law and and gospel in the moral standards which they teach. The antithesis is in the way of salvation since the law condemns while the gospel justifies. And I think this is a point that we miss sometimes. Just think about this. In the beginning of time at creation, was there a written law? No. We read in Romans, it was in people's heart and mind. There, there's a consciousness, there's awareness of the right thing and the wrong thing to do. So for 2,700 years, there was no written law. Then came Moses, and the law of Moses came. Are we to say that if we don't believe we're under the law of Moses, are we saying at all that you go live however you want to? Not at all. Because as a matter of fact, the, the, you know, the conscience that is spoken of that is upon creation existed more than twice as long as the law of Moses before the coming of Jesus. It isn't to say that prior to the law of Moses, people lived um, lawless lives and God didn't care. No, there was still a restraint that was innate within mankind. And then there came the written law. But after Jesus came, it is now the law that is written upon our hearts. So the law is good if we use it lawfully, if we allow it to serve the purpose for which it is given, not to justify us, not through works. In verses 9 and 10, it says, Knowing this, that the law is not made for the righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate. And now he begins to kind of uh, 
uh, allude to the Ten Commandments, which is found in Exodus 20. You might want to go read this on your own and read this section. It says, uh, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, all those that are kind of against God. Um, but then he begins to talk about the sins against people, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers and manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites or homosexuals, for kidnappers or slave traders, for liars, for perjurers, and if there's any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. The law is for the unrighteous. I mean, we're glad that it says, thou shalt, you know, our laws of our land say you can't murder, but it's kind of a shame that it has to be there, right? I mean, if you say to me, it's like, yeah, I got mad at you the other day, but I know the state of Virginia forbids murder. I'm getting real nervous around you. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to obey the law. Well, okay, we're, you're not coming to my house anymore, okay? And I'm probably going to hide from you every time I see you from now on. The law, that law's keeping you from murdering me? <laughs> But it's there for the unrighteous. Thou shalt not lie. It's there for the liar. So it, this is what he is saying. Now, as he goes through this list, again, alluding to the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments found in Exodus 20. But I just want to note a couple of things here. Um, so we have time to, to get in our communion. Um, and I think they're particularly relevant to things that are going on in our society. Fornication. That's sexual immorality. Any sexual act that is outside of the marriage relationship between a husband and wife, male and female, as created by God. I mean, you got to keep on going on and on to, to make this statement. This is what anything outside of that is forbidden. Well, we're in love. You might be in love, but that, is not, that act is not love. Or making love. No, you're not. You're making him and her a sinner. That's what you're doing. Love is choosing the highest good for another person. How could I possibly say that I'm loving you if I'm leading you into sexual sin, which is rebellion against God and brings judgment? That is not a loving thing to do. I'm not saying you don't love them, but that act is not loving. That act is self-serving, and it is not pleasing the Lord. Homosexuality. You know, the Bible is clear that you know, adultery is wrong, that fornication is wrong, that bestiality is wrong, and it's also clear that homosexuality is wrong. It's all sexual immorality. The Bible teaches this. Now, some would have us to say, no, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Old Testament doesn't teach that, and the New Testament doesn't teach that. Completely fabricated nonsense. Here's what you need to know. They who say the, the Bible does not forbid homosexuality this is what they believe. They believe that the authority to interpret Scripture lies not in the words that were written by the author. Excuse me, let me say this another way. They believe that the meaning of Scripture is not found in the author who wrote them, but on the reader who interprets them. None of us want to live life like that. None of us want to raise kids like that. None of us want to have relationships like that. None of us want to have a military sports, a band like that. We all want to say words mean something, notes mean something, obey my words, let's agree to this. We have an understanding that words and sentences and the context of paragraphs, they mean something. Those who say the Bible does not teach that homosexuality is wrong are saying words don't mean something. And they say it. One, one, and I've quoted it many times. One um, author says that, you know, the, the power and the meaning of words reside with the reader, not the author. Therefore, I can make it mean whatever I want it to. So don't be confused by this. The Bible says it's wrong. Just like it says, um, you know, sex before marriage is wrong. Just like it says adultery is wrong. It's not targeting. It's just all sexual immorality is wrong. And so these are things that I think we, we deal with in our culture, maybe more than some of these other issues. But the other item that I, I want you to see in the passage before us is there in verse 10. And it says, it's also for kidnappers. Or you can read that slave traders. I know if you have the NIV or in the newer translations, it's going to say slave traders. And that is a 
um, a good definition. It can mean kidnapper, but it can also mean a slave dealer. And so one of the accusations that we hear so often is that, well, the Bible um, endorses slavery. It, it doesn't endorse slavery. And um, I'm not going to explore the topic completely, but read it. It's right there in front of you. That the selling of slaves was to be forbidden. It doesn't say here that slavery is forbidden. Follow me with this, though. Just to be fair, it doesn't say that. It says slave trade should stop. And um, this is something that, I mean, slavery is still going on in our world today. It's still an issue. So it doesn't forbid slavery, but it is forbidding taking somebody by force and then selling them for, uh, for money. But that is not the only way by which a person became a slave in the first century world. And even prior to that, um, in the first century, uh, prisoners of war were uh, captured and um, they were brought back and they were sold. And by the, uh, by the end of this first century, most people that were in slavery were there because they were born into slavery. That was the main reason. Um, but there are other ways in which those numbers were supplemented. One was by the, the, you could sell yourself into slavery for a period of time. The money that you sold in there would actually act, help to buy yourself out. You would serve a time. Did people always handle that correctly? I'm sure they didn't. But that was a way that it happened. Um, you could sell your children. Sorry, you can't do that anymore. So we, we're not purchasing. So you're, you, you got to love them and raise them yourself. Um, Abortion, um, not a real common process, but abandoning your child was if you didn't want them. And so those children would be taken and they'd be put in as slaves. And debt bondage. So if you were in debt, you, could, you would then be called a slave until you worked it off. For the Jew, um, it was forbidden to hold a slave for more than seven years. So it was a very different situation. But what Paul is saying is that you can't engage in this. This is wrong. You know, Men like William Wilberforce, who probably stands out more than just about anybody, um, uh, did more to overturn slave trade and eventually the emancipation of slaves than anybody else. Um, I'm not saying other people were involved, but he was the one that really spearheaded it. He was somebody that was in Parliament in England, and he used his efforts. Now, some people will criticize him because he you know, was just trying to stop slave trade and he wasn't um, coming out and trying to emancipate. In the end, he did do that. But he also realized there's a practical side of trying to get this through the parliament. And so he worked to just end slave trade first. And I believe, if I remember my history correctly, three days before he died, those laws were finally enacted. And that took place. And, and other men alongside of him, John Newton and, and, um, and Wesley, these men, Christian men, were wanting to do, um, to do that. And it had its desired impact. It stopped. Um, not to say that it's been eradicated, but it stopped as a matter of public policy. Of course, in the Americas, um, we had a war over this issue and state rights. In our own country, like, you know, we had the likes of William Wilberforce and um, men like Frederick Douglass and Benjamin Rush, um, a signer to the Constitution, uh, Moses Brown, and, and many others fought against this. And it's great. But these are people that when you go and read their read their background. These were people that loved Jesus Christ, and they saw that this was wrong. Did it take too long? Yes. Should have it ever been there? No. But to, to think today, after all that the world has gone through for the last hundreds of years of trying to deal with this, that there are still millions of people that are in slavery, it's just shocking, isn't it? It's shocking to think that that is taking place, that people are being kidnapped, and then they're being sold. But it is real and we shouldn't be naive to it, but we should also know that the Bible forbids it. Should have the church rose up and handled this better than she did? Yes, she should have. But praise the Lord that there were those that were Christians that gave their life to this, because this, was, this certainly is one of those things that's a scourge upon humanity that we would own somebody and just rip them apart from families and life and all the rest. Thou shalt not steal. This is the ultimate act of stealing, is to take somebody. And so you can again see how the, the Ten Commandments are in parallel. Let's wrap it up here, verse 11, just a couple of comments. 
It says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. The gospel is not lawless. So he's talking about the law. He talks about these different aspects of the law. And then he says, according to the glorious gospel. So the gospel is not lawless. It's, you know, it's just that we don't look to the law um, to find salvation. But we do want to do what Jesus said. If you love me, keep my commandments. We do want to be, as the Lord said, be holy, for I am holy. And so we know the things that please the Lord. And we go to, listen to me, we go to the New Testament to find out Christian doctrine and Christian practice. We don't go to the Old Testament to establish New Testament doctrine. It's not that it's, you can't find it there, but you don't go there. That was given to the nation of Israel and in a Many of the laws being civil and how they should function, plenty of them were ceremonial and religious um, and, um, and personal. But the, what the New Testament restates from the Old Testament, that is how we are to practice and to walk out love, foundation found in the Old Testament. If you show me a false doctrine, I'm going to say seven out of ten times, I will say and show you how it's been wrenched from the Old Testament and taken out of context. Not understanding or discerning the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and then trying to take an Old Covenant verse and apply it to the New Covenant. I'll give you an example. When they talk about the prosperity doctrine, that is that God wants everybody to be rich and healthy, they don't go to the New Testament. They go to the Old Testament. And they look at the promises that were given to a specific group of people that they'd be prosperous in their land and that he would bless them with health. There was a condition on that if they, you know, walked in his, their commandments. And so people will look at those verses and they'll say, look and see, health and prosperity, that's promise. But that's old covenant. And you've got to make a bridge from the old covenant to the new covenant. And you've got to understand what's going on. So you, should, you find a, 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 a teaching that's aberrant. Look and see if it's in, if from the Old Testament. It doesn't mean it automatically is because it's from the Old Testament. I'm not saying that. But you've got to do your homework and understand that you're in the New Covenant. So hey, the law is good. And it has its purpose. It is not lawless. And we should understand it. So if you're here today, this is what it means if you don't know Jesus. You can't earn your way to salvation. You're thinking, I've got to clean my life up before I can get saved. No, you can't. None of us can. You can't clean up. In the context of the Lord accepting means be perfect. And even if you could be perfect from here on out, which you can't and I can't, what are you going to do about your past? you got to deal with that. And you can't, nor can I, but the Lord can. And he sent his son to go to the cross and take on his, our, our sin and punishment in his body that he might give to us his righteousness. So Jesus died on the cross for our sin, but we, we have the righteousness of God. I like to put it this way. We have God's kind of righteousness, and Jesus gave it to us as we put our faith and trust in him apart from works. I hope that this helps us to kind of get a balance and an understanding of how the gospel and the law work together, not for justification, but it will tell you you're a sinner, right? It will tell you the kinds of things God wants us to do. It, it, it will, it's helpful in restraining the lawless person, but it's not helpful at all to save you. It was given to tell you, you can't make it. It's like algebra for me, right? I mean, it's just like, why does algebra exist? To tell me that I am terrible at math. That's why it exists. No, seriously, the law tells us we can't make it. But Jesus says, I made it for you. And now we can enter into that. And we get to share in communion right now. The bread and the cup will come around. The worship team, you guys can start making your way up here. And as, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, hold on to it. And we'll share it together in just a moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace, your mercy. Lord, we all know, every one of us in here knows we're sinners. We have not been perfect. And although we may strive to live completely pleasing lives, we know that we come up short. So thank you for salvation through grace by faith. 
And thank you that you sent your son. Lord, as we hold in our hands this bread, as we hold in our hands the cup, and we ponder this, teach us, remind us of how ugly and how dangerous sin is. But remind us of how victorious you have been over that through the sacrifice of your son. Amen. Amen. We're gonna, usher's going to come now and pass out the elements and hold on to those. We'll partake, partake together in, in just a moment. before the Lord. Lord, we thank you for the clarity and the truth of, of Scripture. We are sinners. We are lost, separated from you. 
you are righteous and you sent your son to take on our punishment for sin, that we might have your righteousness. Lord, thank you that we stand clean before you this morning. Thank you that we stand whole. We are justified. Oh, Lord, we know we're a work in progress. And we thank you for your continued ministry, the Holy Spirit that sanctifies us. But, Lord, we pray that we would would walk in appreciation and love. We pray, Lord, that we would be those that are listening to that written word upon our heart that says, love your God and love your neighbor. That, Lord, it would constrain us to live lives pleasing to you because we've been set free, because we've been born again, because we've been made righteous, not by our works, but by your work. We hold in our hands the bread and the cup. It tells us that sin is real and sin has deadly consequences. The bread represents Jesus' body broke, uh, that was broken. And we read in Scripture what he went through, ripped apart. The cup tells us, again, that, yeah, it's real. But it also shares with us that we can be made clean. The broken body of Christ so that we might behold the shed blood of Jesus that we might be clean. Let's eat and drink with thanksgiving. Well, as we, as we go from here, let us go with a, a, a biblical understanding of what we believe, and let's earnestly contend for it, that faith that was delivered once for all to you, to me, to us, the saints. Some of you have been Christians for so many years. You know the Word of God. You know doctrine. You can, you're, you're, just, you're able to easily communicate it. I just encourage you to earnestly contend which I think we often think of in the context in which they were dealing with it was for false teachers that were coming in. But let me tell you a positive way in which you can earnestly contend. Go teach those kids next door. Invest in the youth. Invest in the new believer. Invest in that that person that's going through a struggle. Earnestly contend because if we will pass on what has been handed down once for all to us and you've had the privilege of being taught for decades, many years in your life, make sure you're giving it away. Don't leave that for somebody else. Now, if you don't like kids, don't do it, okay? (laughs) God can change your heart. But let's earnestly contend for this faith, and let's not be afraid to lovingly stand firm in the truth that has been given to us. Um, Tonight, 6 o'clock, back out here for prayer. People will be up here right now for prayer as well. So if you need to come and receive this grace of God and salvation, don't walk out without letting us pray for you. If you have any other need, we love to pray with you. God bless you guys. Um, We had 50 of us head to Israel tomorrow, so I'll be back in about 12 days. And um, appreciate your prayers for just travel safety. You don't have to pray for fun. That's going to happen. But uh, just pray for safety. We appreciate it. God bless you guys.